As Nathan said, we're glad to be here with you guys this morning to discuss baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we hope that our time together will, first and foremost, honor and please the Lord. We want it to benefit you and the church that's not represented here in this room, the church that's outside of there. Uh, both will benefit, uh, both those in this room and those outside this room. We're going to raise some questions this morning, hopefully in your minds, and your thinking, and then hopefully we'll also answer some questions, some of the ones that we've raised and some others that maybe you've been thinking. We want to help start this conversation in some families. In some families, maybe you're not having these conversations about baptism or the Lord's Supper. In other families, maybe you are having these conversations, and we want to assist you with that. We want to encourage you in that. We want to provide an opportunity for each of us to grow. And then we hope and pray that each of us, through this conversation, will see Christ See him more gloriously. See him in his glory. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper are primarily about him, not about us. They are for us, but they are primarily about Christ, and so we want to see him in his glory. Now, I'm going to start today by reading two texts, and I've got two texts, and one of them is rather long, and so uh, I'm going to read through that quickly and then read the second one, but if you want to follow along in your Bibles, Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, and then Luke 22. Maybe you want to mark both of those. But Paul writes to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Paul says. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner Will be, guilty of, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I'm going to skip to verse 33. It says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Now, if you 
also marked Luke 22. I'm going to begin in verse 17 in Luke 22. Give you a second to turn there. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 17. Jesus is with his apostles at the table, and he says, it says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, these are the clearest texts in the New Testament regarding the Lord's Supper. There are many places we can look, but these really form the foundation of what I hope to talk to you about today and what we consider this morning. And as Nathan said, what we're going to try and do is basically answer three questions. What is the Lord's Supper or communion? What it isn't? And then who is it for? And then at the end of my time with you, I'm going to make a pastoral appeal to parents and to kids alike. Okay, and then we're going to open it up for a Q&A discussion. So we'll just start with what is it? The first thing you might think of in terms of Lord's Supper or communion is it is a memorial meal. Jesus made it clear that we are to celebrate this meal in remembrance of him. A memorial is a remembering and we're to do this in remembrance of him. Both in Luke's account and in Paul's recounting of what Jesus said, we see the Lord using the phrase, do this in remembrance of me. It is a symbolic remembrance of Christ's sinless life and his atoning death. His sinless life and his atoning death. And we are to remember this as his people. It celebrates our communion with Christ. Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. So this celebrates our communion with him. Thus the name communion, our co-union with Christ. We have been united to him. And the Lord's Supper celebrates this. And the bread and the wine, these are the elements of this meal called the Lord's Supper. Again, this is a meal that Jesus instituted, and the bread and the wine are the elements that Jesus used to represent his body and his blood, the blood of the new covenant. As we think about what is the Lord's Supper, we might think it is a fellowship of God's people. It is clear in the text that we just read that the Lord's Supper is intended to show our co-union with one another over and over and over again. Paul says, and when you come together, and when you come together, and when you come together. We are individually God's people, but we are corporately God's people. We are his people together. We are the church. And so this meal is a fellowship of God's people. Another way to think of the Lord's Supper is that it is a proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus. It's designed to proclaim the death resurrection, and return of Jesus Christ. Again, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, it, it says, Jesus says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death. That's actually Paul who says it. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a proclamation of what Jesus has done, his sinless life, his suffering and receiving the wrath of God and dying on the cross. And then his promised coming again. For them, in one sense, a coming again on the third day. And then the glorious return of the Lord. So we proclaim the gospel through the Lord's Supper. And Mark Dever, who's a teaching pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, summarizes these points well by saying, taking the Lord's Supper then is a participation in the unity of the church's fellowship around the remembrance of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his saving work through the symbols of bread and wine. So this is a proclamation of what Jesus has done using the elements that he has given us and it is for us as his body. Now the final point I want to make in terms of what is the Lord's Supper is it's a savoring of the new covenant promises. The new covenant can best be described or the key text for that is Jeremiah chapter 31 where Jeremiah says this, and he says this of this new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. This is the new covenant. This is the glorious work that God has done for his people. What Jesus has come to accomplish. And there are four primary promises of this new covenant that we should take note of. God promises to put his law within his covenant people. He's going to write it on our hearts. This is to be celebrated. Not a law that's outside of us, but a law that's inward by his spirit that God has done. He promises to be our God and that we will be his people. This is a great and glorious promise. It is a frightful thing to not have him be your God or to not be his people. It's a great promise. He promises from the the least person to the greatest person, we will all know him. If you are in Christ, you know him. This is a wonderful thing, a thing to be celebrated by the church. And then finally, God promises to forgive the sins of his covenant people. To remember your sins no more. Not that he forgets. He chooses not to count your sins against you if you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So maybe a way to summarize this and actually I actually have one more point so let me just touch on this quickly one other thing that the Lord's Supper is is it's an opportunity to examine oneself we hear this clearly in Paul's uh, writing there in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should examine our own hearts and our lives Paul addresses many things that are happening in the Corinthian church and these things can well be happening here within our own church within our own hearts and our own lives he addresses divisions and factions with other members in the body when we come to the Lord's Supper, we are instructed to examine ourselves. Am I divided from other brothers and sisters in the family of God? 
He addresses lack of consideration and love for others. So do I examine myself to ask, am I being inconsiderate of others? Am I eating, am I sitting here eating this meal because God in his grace has provided for me while my brother or sister there is sitting in poverty and has nothing to eat? Am I considerate of others in the family of God? Are there other clear areas of unrepentance in my life? One that Paul addresses in the text is drunkenness. Something that I need to examine myself. And then do I have contempt for the body and blood of the Lord? So this is what the Lord's Supper is. It's a memorial meal where we remember Christ and all of his glory and our communion with him. It's a fellowship of God's people. That's why Nathan said, we don't just take a, a finger and a toe and go over here and do this. We do this together as God's people. It celebrates our union with one another as the people of God. It's a proclaiming of the gospel of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a savoring, a tasting of the sweetness of the new covenant. We're reminded again of the covenant promises that God makes to his people, to us. And it's an opportunity to examine our hearts and our lives to ensure that we're living in love. It's, it's, it's an odd thing what the church in Corinth was doing to be acting with such disregard for one another while they're coming together to celebrate the regard that God had for them the love that God had for them, the love that God demonstrated for them in Christ and in his life on their behalf. And so it's a great opportunity to examine ourselves. And it leads us to our next question, what it isn't, what the Lord's Supper isn't. And there's two main points I want to just convey this morning. The first is it's not a full-fledged meal. It's not designed to be a full-fledged meal. It's not a, a meal to fill up our bodies it's a memorial meal. It's a symbolic meal. Paul addresses the Corinthian church when they're coming together to eat. And he says, you're coming together to eat, and you who are wealthy are eating a lot, and those who are in poverty are not, don't have anything to eat. And he says very clearly, you're not taking the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not what you're eating here. They're eating their regular meals and doing so without consideration of others. So this is not intended to be a full-fledged meal. It's a remembrance meal. We're not here for our bodies. We're here for our souls when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Okay? Bread and wine are not a meal. A small token of bread, a small uh, portion of the wine, that's not a meal. The elements represent Christ and what he has done. Okay? It, again, is designed to satisfy our souls, to feed us spiritually, not to feed us physically. Second point on what it isn't, what the Lord's Supper isn't, is it's not the physical presence of Christ in the elements of bread and wine. Other churches, even other denominations, will teach that it is the physical presence of Christ. And we do not believe that it is the physical presence of Christ. It is his symbolic spiritual presence with us. He's present, clearly. He's present there among his people, doing a spiritual work, but not his physical body and blood in the elements. So biblical scholar Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology says this. He says, in distinction from Martin Luther, 
John Calvin and other reformers argued that the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper did not change into the body and blood of Christ, nor did they somehow contain the body and blood of Christ. Rather, the bread and wine symbolized the body and blood of Christ. And Grudem continues and says, Today most Protestants would say, in addition to the fact that the bread and wine symbolize the body and blood of Christ, that Christ is also spiritually present in a special way as we partake of these elements that he has instituted. So he is there. But this is not his physical body and blood in the elements that we take. This is what the Lord's Supper is not. It's not a full-fledged meal, and it is not the physical presence of Christ, but this is a spiritual meal. Okay? So then we ask the third and final question, who is it for? Well, the simplest way is to say, it's for those who believe in Christ. It's not for everybody. It's for those who believe in Christ, who have put their trust in him and him alone. For all the things that we read about in the new covenant promises that God makes, for eternal life, for forgiveness of sins, for peace with God. Okay? So it is only for those who have been born again of the Spirit, repented of their sin, believed the gospel, Continue on in their faith. Not believed, like Jesus' parable of the different soil, believe for a moment and then forsook belief. So they continue on the faith. Remain in fellowship with the church. It's not God's design for the Christian to be over here and the church to be over here. I'm a Christian, but it's just me and Jesus. It's not God's design. It's God's design that we live out our faith in a community called the church. Okay? It's a sign of being a Christian and continuing on in the Christian life. Okay? So some would argue that it is only for those who have been baptized, since baptism is the Christian symbol for beginning the Christian life. Now before you throw stones uh, my direction, please know that we don't hold to this position. Okay? The position that anyone not baptized should not participate in the Lord's Supper. We see the two connected. We see an important connection between the two. But we wouldn't say that if you are not baptized, you should not participate in the Lord's Supper. We might just simply ask the question, why are you not baptized? If you're identifying with Christ through the Lord's Supper, then why are you not identifying with him through baptism? And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Okay? Who's it for? It's for those who by faith examine themselves as they're instructed. It's not for us to just come and sit in the service. Maybe Pastor Ryan saying something or somebody else. I don't really care. I'm even warned, not only by the scripture, but then by the one who is preaching in the service to examine myself. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Examination is part of our responsibility in the Lord's Supper. So it is for those who examine themselves as we are instructed. Okay? Now, related to children and youth, David Michael, an associate for parenting at Children's Discipleship at Bethlehem Baptist Church, in response to many inquiries that he gets from parents as to when should my kids participate in the Lord's Supper, he says this, He says, our communion services are open to all present, including children who are 
trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and the fulfillment of all of his promises to us, including eternal life, and who intend to follow him as Lord and obey his commandments. David Michael says, Therefore, children are welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper when they can understand its significance, when they are able to give a credible profession of faith, and when they consciously intend to follow the Lord in obedience. When these things are true of your children, they are welcome at the table. In a nutshell, it's for the new covenant people of God and only for those who have been born again. It's not for those who are born into a Christian home but do not have a genuine saving faith themselves. It is not for those who have Christian parents and or grandparents but have not repented and believed in the gospel. It's not for anyone who places their hope of salvation, peace with God, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life on anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his finished work. And clearly, it is not for those who deny or oppose Christ, whether that is actively or passively. The Lord's Supper is for God's people. It's for those who have been regenerated by his spirit and born again and have all their hope fixed on Christ. That's not true of every person in this room. So it's not. You're welcome at the Lord's Supper service. We want you there because that's where the gospel is preached. But the elements are for believers. The participation in this meal is for God's people. So let me just conclude by reminding you of the symbolism of each ordinance and then asking a couple questions. Baptism symbolizes our being a Christian. It does. It symbolizes who we are as a child of God, our being a Christian, and beginning the Christian life. And the Lord's Supper symbolizes our being a Christian. It says, I'm identified with Christ. I'm partaking of these elements. But it symbolizes our continuing in the Christian life. Okay? So if you're participating in the Lord's Supper, but have not been baptized, then wouldn't it be good for you to get baptized in obedience to the Lord? especially since it's the symbol of beginning the Christian life. What did Ryan say this morning? It's the birth announcement kind of thing. You know, it's my birth announcement. Well, we have birth announcements at the beginning of the life, right? So it's the appropriate symbol that Christ has given us for beginning the Christian life. So shouldn't we be baptized if we have not yet been baptized? If you're willing to participate in one outward symbol of being a Christian, namely the Lord's Supper... In other words, you, you identify yourself with Christ, you're willing to participate in that and partake of the elements, then is there any reason why you are unwilling to participate or have neglected to participate in the other outward symbol, that of baptism? It's a fair question for us to consider. Why am I willing to participate in one of the ordinances, but I've neglected or I'm unwilling to participate in the other ordinance? Why is that? Now, for parents... If you're withholding baptism from your children until they can articulate and show evidence of a credible faith in Christ, we would affirm that and then would only ask, why would you not also withhold communion from them as well? 
at least until that point where you're confident. Yeah, they can articulate it. They have a credible profession here. Don't let them partake because it's easier and everybody else is doing it and they're curious about it. If you're withholding one for good reasons, you should probably withhold both. On the other hand, if you're affirming your child's active faith in Christ through communion, you're saying, I believe my child to be a Christian. And they're partaking of the elements in this service called the Lord's Supper because they're in Christ. Then also affirm them in baptism. Have them be baptized. We're raising these questions because we wonder if there's not some inconsistency here. We want to challenge us as a church with these things. So my appeal to you in closing is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, recall his great and precious promises for you. Celebrate who you are in him. If you have not, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put all your trust in him. Put your faith in him. And then be baptized and participate in the Lord's Supper. Do it with joy and celebration with the people of God. This is for his glory, ultimately, but this is also for our profound good as God's people. So believe in him. Repent. Trust in the gospel. Be baptized. Partake in the Lord's Supper to the glory of God. So that's it. That's what I have for you guys on the Lord's Supper. So Nathan's going to come back up. Uh, One thing we'll say as Nathan comes back up is this is not a fully-fledged thought on either subject, baptism or Lord's Supper. Many volumes, books have been written. This is an introduction. We want to talk about these things with you guys. We want to answer your questions. We want to think through this with you. He and I may not have all the answers. Thankfully, God does, and we can depend on his spirit and his word to help us in these, but we want to start this conversation with you, and so this is why we're doing this, and we welcome your questions now. And some of the books and volumes that have been written... Uh, I showed you the, your child's profession of faith earlier. We have these in the back, right? On the stand back there in the children's ministry? No. No, not anymore? No. Well, we, give those, we give those out in the baptism class. Okay. But. Well, this is a great resource from uh, Bethlehem Baptist David Michael, the guy that Tim mentioned earlier on preparing, your young pe- preparing young people for baptism. Such a good kind of diagnostic resource as I'm reading. Do I believe these things? Are these, are these things true of me? Should I be baptized? So this is really helpful. Uh, so we welcome your questions, um, welcome some thoughts that have maybe come up for the first time as you listen to Tim and uh, me talk. Um, we're recording this, so I'm just going to tell you right now, this might get a little funny, but I'm going to, whoever is answering the question, we're going to repeat your question into our mics so that people, parents that might hear. Uh, is your mic on? I think so. No? So I'll repeat the questions. I'll repeat them. Yeah. Sandy.
yeah, that's right. So Sandy's asking those who are interested in baptism, young persons, youth, or, or kids, can participate in the baptism class, or even you parents, uh, and, and then move on to, to baptism. Yeah, there's a, there's a process that we have here, and, and the baptism class is really the beginning of that or an initial contact uh, with us saying, yes, I'm interested. But you go through this class. Now, that class is really designed for parents and their kids to attend together. This book that Nathan just referred to, it's called, well, this is, uh, yeah, it's Preparing Young People for Baptism, a mentor's guide. And what we do is we don't say, just looking at the number of kids in this room, that Nathan and I will mentor all of your kids toward baptism. It's God's design that you would do that. And so this class is for parents and for kids to come to learn about baptism, understand it is, to clearly understand the gospel and make sure that there's a, a clear grasp of what that is for the child who desires to be baptized. And so we have a, a couple books for you to read and, and a process for you as parents. This is a great, great resource, very helpful. The parents that, that I've worked with, I've done this class for a number of years now, and the parents who've gone through this with their kids have just loved this process. This is so good. It's such a great time to take spiritual responsibility, to go with your kid and to think about these things, to think about the glory of who Christ is and what he has done for us with your child, to understand if they're really ready, if they, if they get this. They get some of it, likely, uh, but do they get all of it? Do they, do they really believe? Um, so, so, yes, we'll do a baptism class here in the fall if we have response. Uh, we would love... We would love parents and their students to come together. Certainly, you don't have to, but if you're going to go through the full process, parents have to get involved. So, yeah. What else? Yeah, so I'll try and summarize, Laura, your question is how do we say to our kids or encourage our kids who are, maybe have some sort of uh, fear or trepidation of either not knowing exactly how to articulate what they believe, uh, especially in the context of I've got to do it on a video screen or somebody's going to record me in this and there's some nervousness there. How, how do we encourage them? How do we help them uh, with this? Uh, so, Nathan, do you want to jump on that and then I can help? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, I would say that this is a public thing. Uh, and and we, we said that those who are baptized are those who have received his word, have believed his word, and understand and can articulate what they believe. So I think one good thing about this class is walking through that and being able to, yeah, they, your kids might be able to understand and grasp the gospel, but then helping to articulate what you believe. I think if you can't articulate what you believe, you may not actually believe. Um, so I think that's an important part of it. Um, and two, uh, yeah, you're right that we're commanded to 
publicly proclaim with boldness, and I would say if there's some shame of, and I understand that there's some fear of um, just being public and everything like that, but it is, it is videoed, right? It's just you and a camera. You're not actually having to talk in front of 300 people. Uh, but if there is some shame in that, then maybe there's some moments of actual good reflection there. Is this something uh, that I'm actually willing to publicly proclaim. We as Christians in America don't have to go through much persecution, right? Uh, and is this something, I love that thing that I gave you earlier uh, from the German Anabaptists in the 16th century, have I felt the tug of the world and its attraction and for Jesus' sake uh, denied it? Is this something that I actually believe that I would go to jail for or that I would die for? If I'm, a, if I'm not willing to record a three-minute testimony of what Jesus has done for me, then I may not. Uh, And so I would say this is a great opportunity, a great growing ground for boldness. Uh, And if, uh, yeah, if, if, I don't know, you have anything else to say? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I I would say it's an opportunity to encourage them, to help them to, our kids really embrace their faith. You know, Ryan often says, you know, I get the, I can't help it. And just think about your kids. Now, there are some kids that are just really, really shy. And I was shy as a child. I'm even somewhat shy as an adult. Uh, but there, So there are some that may just be so shy that you can, cannot think of a single example where they get excited, where they're willing to speak out or proclaim. But think about that as parents. Think about that as, as youth. You know, can you get really excited about your, your sports team or about your activity at school or about your new best friend or such that it comes off of your lips? Well, why am I so reserved about my faith and about Christ? If it's real inside of me, I begin to get that I can't help it. And that doesn't mean that shyness goes away. So they're still going to be shy. In fact, we had some examples of that in our, our last baptism service. Uh, some, some shy youth who, who were baptized, and yet they did it. In the class, we help kids and parents walk through some of this. In fact, we have some exercise. We have what's called the baptism testimony exercise, which helps them get it on paper, work it out, and then begin rehearsing it, begin practicing it. So, so if this is true, and we do believe and we are shy, or there's some level of fear, but we can do this, and we should do this. You know, I, I find myself praying often, God, get me out of the way, and just glorify yourself. Because if it's just me, I'm intimidated by this. I'm intimidated to do this. I don't, I don't want to be speaking in front of lots of people. I don't like that. God, you have a message to proclaim, and it's a good message. And if you want to proclaim that through me, Great. If he has saved you, he wants to proclaim that message through you. Not only through baptism, but just through relationships uh, all of your life. So, so we'll help with those things and encourage. It may be a, a reason to even wait a while and say, until this is more solidified and this is really growing inside of you where it's ready to burst forth and you want to say it, um, even if you have some trouble at times saying things. Make sense? Other questions? I, I will say this. If, if, if you don't want to ask your question publicly, 
Nathan and I are, are glad to take and, and receive any of your questions privately. So, so please know that. This is if just the beginning of the conversation. Some of you guys are new to our youth ministry. Nathan at DesertSpringsChurch.org or Tim at DesertSpringsChurch.org. Anytime. Yeah. What else? JJ? Yeah, so what do we say when there's conflict between the child's perspective and the parent's perspective? child thinks that they're ready to be baptized, they desire to be baptized, they're ready to proclaim their faith in a public way. Parents a little more reserved, thinking, I need to, we need to wait, be more patient, uh, watch for more fruit, watch for more desire to be growing, those kinds of things, uh, repentance of sin, all those things. Yeah, um, this can certainly obviously happen, and there is likely opportunities on both sides here. You know, so for the child, an opportunity to recognize that we live under authority. And sometimes we don't always understand what mom and dad are thinking. We can ask them, we can talk through that, we can think through that with mom and dad, but to be subject to the authorities that God places in our lives. Uh, it's, it's the same at weddings. When people come here to Desert Springs to, to inquire about getting married, one of the questions I ask them in their application is do your parents know of this, and do they approve of this? And these are older kids, I call them kids. Uh, these are, are young adults, uh, so they're older than the youth here. But God has put authority in our lives. For the parents, it's an opportunity to maybe ask, well, why are they reserved? What are, what are they questioning? They may have some very good reasons. They may not. So parents and kids can reason through these things together. The kids are under the parents' authority. And as a church, we want to help you with that. So a class is a great way to do that, or a, a, an email or private conversation with Nathan uh, or myself or Pastor Ron's a great way to just think through these things. Uh, I would just say, if, if there is that conflict, don't just leave it that way. Just seek the counsel of others, uh, others that you would trust to say, uh, why? Uh, but for you youth, uh, understand that you are under your parents' authority. So if mom and dad say... We need to wait. Then trust in God's goodness in that. We don't always think of authority as goodness, but it is goodness. So trust in your parents' goodness as you've had those conversations and they say, well, we've determined we want to wait. And I'd just say, too, your parents probably know you better than anyone else. Uh, I get to see church you and camp you, right. but they get to see home you, and I think the home you is the real you. Uh, and there may be some significant questions there. When, when mom and dad know the real you, uh, they may be saying, you aren't actually trusting in Jesus. You aren't loving God or your siblings or your neighbors, right? So this is an opportunity for you to say, is this true of me? Is this what I believe? But then on the flip side of that, parents, what I said earlier is don't wait for perfection, right? That's right. Uh, your kids will never be perfect perfect and if you wait for them to stop sinning before you baptize them they'll never be baptized raise your hand if you were perfect and got baptized at some point in your life right. two hours only one great yeah true yeah yeah 
Only because Drew was clothed in the righteousness of Christ was he perfect. <laughs> right. Yeah. Other questions? Or, or even comments? I mean, we want this to kind of be a family conversation, so, so we're glad for this, questions and answers, but this is starting these conversations, and we want to continue to have them with you. Um, but if you have a comment or a question, we'd love to have that.